have you ever had one of those problems that you didn't, <laughs> yeah, we've all got problems, right? <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Have you ever had one of those problems that you didn't want to face, and so it just kind of kept growing into something bigger and bigger as you continued to ignore it? Ever experienced that? We all know that feeling, right? We've all found ourselves in these kinds of situations. Last week, uh, many of you know I had some time off, and it's great to see you all again. By the way, I missed your beautiful faces. It's good to be back. Uh, but I took some time off, and it was really great. I uh, took some time to uh, visit friends and to just enjoy the outdoors. It was like so sunny and so summery last week. It was awesome. But I also spent uh, a pretty significant amount of time breaking down cardboard because I'd gotten myself into one of those situations. Last fall, uh, some of you know I moved, which meant that I bought a bunch of furniture and household items, all of which came packaged in like an unreasonable amount of cardboard and styrofoam. I mean, like for all of the shortages that we've had over the last couple of years, I can assure you that there is no shortage in packaging materials, okay? They are not trying to preserve that. They are like giving that stuff away. And I don't like breaking down cardboard because it's boring and tedious and messy and I'm busy, right? I've got other things that I'd like to do with my time. So I don't like breaking down cardboard. And so what I did as I was moving in is I just kind of threw everything into a giant pile in my basement. And this is the beautiful thing about basements, right? You can like hide stuff down there. And so I got the rest of my place all like neat and tidy and presentable, but in the basement, there was this giant pile of packaging materials that was growing bigger and bigger until finally, last week, I, I tackled it and I claimed victory over that pile of cardboard. And maybe you too have like a disaster area somewhere in your house that you've been meaning to organize for the last 20 years that just keeps getting more and more clutter. I can tell by the looks on some of your faces that that's your story. <laughs> or maybe some of you, uh, you're the kinds of people who have had that check engine light on for the last six months. And every time you drive your car, you just kind of like try to position the steering wheel so that you don't have to look at it. You know, one day I'll tell you the story about the time I ignored uh, the check tire pressure light and then that my tire burst as I was driving in Hamilton with a client. <laughs> I'll, I'll, another day, I'll tell you that one another day. Um, maybe, for you, maybe you have a container of leftovers in the back of your refrigerator uh, that's been growing mold, like more and more every day, and you know it's there, but you don't want to face it, so you're just kind of like pretending not to see it, tucking it in behind the milk every time you look at uh, your fridge. Maybe for you, uh, there's a doctor's appointment that you haven't made, you know, that you've been putting off for the last six months, or an inbox that's just getting like overwhelming and it stresses you out every time you look at it. The reality is, when we're brought face to face with something that brings us anxiety, or makes us uncomfortable, or causes us pain, or just something that we don't like, our most natural reaction is to avoid it. And sometimes, that tendency 
ends up making our lives so much worse, doesn't it? And if we're honest, the same principle is true with those things inside of us that are difficult to face. The areas of our lives that bring us shame. Our failures, our weaknesses, our insecurities, the sin we keep falling into, the habits we can't break, the parts of our past that we aren't proud of, the things in our lives that people criticize us for and judge us about. The most natural response to the parts of our lives that bring us shame is to distance ourselves from them, to hide them, to to shove them down in the basement where no one can see them and to pretend like they don't exist. And this has been true from the very beginning. The book of Genesis tells us about how everything began, about how God created the world and he created Adam and Eve, right? The first human beings. And scripture tells us that God made those first human beings in his image. And he said after he made them, he declared that they were good. And the author of the book of Genesis goes out of his way to point out something very interesting about what life was like for Adam and Eve before sin entered into the world. Genesis 2 verse 25 says this, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is fascinating, okay? I mean, we get very little information about what life was like in the garden. The author could have told us like a million other things, right? He could have told us uh, what Adam and Eve liked to talk about. He could have like, said that they were really happy, right? That they experienced a lot of peace there. He could have talked about how they spent their time. I'd be interested in those details, wouldn't you? But this is what we get. This is what stands out as the auth- to the author of Genesis as the most important thing to communicate about what life was like in the garden. They were both naked, and they felt no shame. But think about it. When you left your house this morning, none of you forgot to wear clothes. If you're like me, you might be prone to forgetting all kinds of things, right? Like your wallet, your purse, your keys, your phone but we never really forget to put on our clothes, do we? And if you did forget to wear clothes, you wouldn't be feeling relaxed about it. It would be all that you'd be thinking about, right? It'd be a major problem. So this passage is revealing something very profound here. Before sin entered the world, there was no shame. There was no hiding. And this was a central aspect, actually to the author, the most important aspect of what it was like to live in the world when everything was as it should be. This is how God designed us to live. I mean, clothes are okay, right? But without shame. (laughs) But when Adam and Eve disobey God and sin enters the world, what happens? The very first thing we read after they eat the fruit, is this. It's in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They realized they were naked. This is the very first thing that happens after they sin. And what do they do? They hide. They realize they're naked, they're flooded with shame, and so they hide. They cover themselves up with fig leaves and they try to hide from God in the garden. As human beings, this is how we've been dealing with shame from the very beginning. Over the last few months here at Evergreen, we have been working through a series on grace and what it looks like to do life together as a community of people whose lives are defined by God's grace. And grace is one of those things that's easy enough to agree with cognitively. We can understand on a cognitive level that we've all sinned and that we don't have what it takes to save ourselves and that through Jesus' death and resurrection, our sin has been forgiven and we've been reconciled to God as a gift of grace. It's easy enough to kind of wrap our heads around that conceptually. But what does it actually mean to experience grace in those areas of our lives where we can't seem to get it together? What does it look like to walk in grace in the broken areas of our real day-to-day lives? How do we deal with the tension between where we're at and where we know we should be? When I was in high school, uh, one of my friends got herself on the bad side of our social group. And I can't remember what happened. I'm pretty sure it had something to, uh, to do with a boy. You know, as it often does. And you know how things are in high school, right? It's like that time where we're all navigating new social dynamics and everyone's trying to find their identity and we're all dealing with like hormones and things like this for the first time. And so small things can tend to get blown up to soap opera levels of drama, right? We know this. And when I was in high school, we didn't have the option, we don't have the luxury of shaming people on the internet, on social media, okay? We had to walk three miles uphill both ways, and we couldn't shame people on the internet. We had to work harder for it, okay? We had to depend on things like giving people dirty looks and talking about them behind their backs, making them feel uncomfortable, you know, and excluding them from social activities and just hope, we just hope that eventually the point would get across, right? And so these kinds of things were happening with my friend, and it blew up to the point where uh, my friend knew that everyone was mad at her, and of course, you know, she's having a really hard time with this, feeling rejected, feeling left out, and that kind of thing. And uh, eventually, you know what happened? The mothers caught wind of what was going on, as mothers do. And I remember my mom sat me down and she said, you know, Tamil, do you think you could just like let it go and make an effort to be kind and and to make your friend feel included again, just to help her out? And I looked at my mom and I said, mom, she's being an idiot. And my mom looked at me and she said, Tamil, She's falling apart. Is it worth it? 
And on the outside, I think what I did is rolled my eyes. You know, because I was a teenager, and there's no way that I was about to let my mom know that she was right. So, you know, if you're parenting teenagers, take some encouragement in this. But inside, it was one of those moments where something clicked inside of me for the very first time. This had, this has, had never occurred to me before. Even if my friend was in the wrong, none of our shaming her or criticizing her or ignoring her was actually helping anything. Nothing constructive was coming out of it. She wasn't changing because of our, you know, shame. We were just hurting her. And we were becoming the kinds of people that we didn't want to be. Like, I didn't want to be a mean kid, right? And literally nothing was changing for the better. Actually, we were just making everything worse for everyone. And I think this is actually a helpful lens for us to use when we're kind of thinking through the conflicts that we find ourselves in our fractured world uh, today. You know, is it worth it? Even if we're right, is our response uh, to the situation helping things get better, or is it causing more harm? And might grace open up a better path forward? But I think the same principle applies when we're dealing with those aspects of our lives that aren't what we'd like them to be. We try to shame ourselves into managing our money better or eating healthier or spending less time on social media. We punish ourselves and criticize ourselves for the ways that we fall short as friends and as parents and at work and as followers of Jesus. We try to like shove down and hide our anger and our resentment and pretend like it's not there until it takes us over and we lash out at others. And is it worth it? The shaming and the punishing and the ignoring never really actually solve the problem. They never really make things better, do they? And so we end up in this endless cycle that just wears us down and tires us out. It can feel kind of like we're at war within ourselves. And I wonder how much of the conflict between us is rooted in the reality that we haven't found a way to deal with the conflict that exists within us. This morning, we're going to look at a passage about somebody who was very well acquainted with shame, who spent her life hiding and avoiding others until she had an interaction with Jesus that changed her life. And ultimately, through her testimony, her entire community ended up being changed as well. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 4 with me. This morning we're going to be looking at the story of the woman at the well. So John chapter 4, and we're going to, have, uh, we're going to be starting in verse 1. So let's have a look. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So Jesus has been doing ministry in Judea, and he's been attracting a lot of attention, gaining new followers, and the religious leaders 
are starting to notice. And so Jesus decides to get out of there and to go back to Galilee. And the passage tells us that he had to go through Samaria. And Jesus, uh, geographically, didn't actually have to go through Samaria, right? It's true that the most direct route to get from uh, Judea to Galilee was to go through uh, Samaria, but often Jewish people would go around Samaria and pass through the Jordan Valley instead. Because as you may know, there was like this long-standing animosity between these groups of people, between the Jews and the Samaritans. Most of the time, the Jews and the Samaritans just kind of like hated each other from a distance. They did everything that they could uh, to avoid interacting with one another. But sometimes violence actually broke out between them and we have reports of uh, the Romans needing to intervene in these kinds of situations. And so Jesus, as he's going through Samaria, is both crossing social boundaries and he's also actually taking a risk. But the passage tells us that he had to, that this was the route he had to take. Not geographically. Jesus had to go through Samaria because this was part of the mission that God called him to. Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to get water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. So Jesus gets tired from his walk from the heat, and he sits down to to take a, uh, a rest near Jacob's well. And a Samaritan woman comes along to get some water, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, if we were to take a snapshot of what was going on here and make one of those what's wrong with this picture puzzles out of it, anybody from this culture would have very quickly been able to point to all kinds of things. We've already identified that as a Jewish rabbi, Jesus is out of place, right, as he's passing through Samaria, but there's more than that. This woman that we read about comes to the well to get water at noon during the hottest part of the day. And usually in this culture, women would make the trek to the well to draw water early in the morning or late in the afternoon once it had cooled down. But this woman came at the time of day when she could be pretty sure that she wasn't going to bump into the other women from her community. She's hiding. There's something shameful about her life that made it easier for her to just keep to herself. Another thing that would have jumped out right away is that Jesus actually spoke to this woman. Most uh, rabbis during this time made sure that they were never in a situation where they were alone with a woman. Has anyone ever heard of the Billy Graham rule? Maybe. It's uh, there's like Billy Graham rule before Billy Graham uh, existed. Yeah. (laughs) So they made sure that they were never alone with another woman. And if they did find themselves in a situation uh, where they were alone with a woman, they would definitely make sure that they didn't talk to her because the risk was too great, right? The temptation could get out of control. People might get ideas about what was going on and rumors could start. So they would never talk to another 
woman if they found themselves in a situation where they were alone with her. And on top of that, to make matters worse, this wasn't just any woman, right? This wasn't a Jewish woman. This was a Samaritan woman, like the very worst kind. And not only is Jesus alone with the Samaritan woman, and not only does he talk to her, he asked to drink from the same bucket as her. I mean, this would have been like even more shocking than asking to share a cup during COVID times. A Jewish person would never uh, share a drinking vessel with a Samaritan because it would make them unclean. But here is Jesus ignoring the cultural divide, assuming friendship, and asking this woman to help a brother out and to give him a drink. He's thirsty. So the woman points out the obvious, verse nine. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, in this culture, living water was actually a term that was used to refer to any kind of running water, water that wasn't stagnant. So it would have been used to talk about like a river or a stream. But we know that Jesus is using this term in a deeper spiritual sense, right? To describe the new life that he's offering to her. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. It's not a bad point. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now it's hard to know how this woman is really processing what Jesus is saying to her. Like, I wonder, maybe she thinks he's totally bananas, like off his rocker. Maybe she's curious as to whether there's any kind of legitimacy as to what he's saying. But she's still thinking about water on a literal level. And it's not hard to imagine how much she hated this journey that she had to make to the well again and again, always being reminded every time that she didn't belong, that she was a failure, that her life was a mess, that she had to do it alone. And so she says, if you've got water like that, water that's never going to make me thirsty again, give it to me so that I never have to come to this well again. And then Jesus takes the conversation in a surprising direction. In verse 16, he says, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. So, there it is. 
There it is. Jesus names it, right? This is the very thing that's at the heart of all of this shame that this woman has been carrying. And Jesus wants to make it really clear as he's talking to her that he actually knows, that he knows every part of her story. Now, there's a lot that we don't know about this woman's past. We don't know whether uh, she's lost her husband's to death, whether they'd passed away, or whether uh, she'd been divorced, or some combination of those things. We don't know how much of it was rooted in her sin, or how much she'd been mistreated. We know that only men, under most circumstances, could initiate divorce in this culture. The text doesn't really focus on the details of her situation. But what we do know is that she'd experienced one emotional upheaval after another. She'd been stigmatized and rejected within her community, and her life was a mess. And Jesus brings this right out into the open. Now, what's the most effective way to avoid going too deep into those parts of our lives that bring us pain? Religious debate, right? So the woman changes the subject to one of the biggest points of division between the Jews and the Samaritans. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So God can't be contained in any one place. And Jesus tells this woman that real worship isn't about your location, as significant as that was to the people in this culture. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. It's about authenticity. It's about integrity. It's a matter of the heart. And for this woman, part of what it meant to worship in spirit and in truth was to bring her full self, including the parts of her life that she was trying to hide, before God, and to let him meet her in those broken places and bring her healing and transformation. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. So the woman essentially just kind of fluffs Jesus off, right? He said this profound response. And she's like, yeah, one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to let us in on everything. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is a profound reveal. This is like an amazing moment. And this is the first of a whole series of I am statements in the Gospel of John. Statements that... Uh, reveal Jesus' identity. 
And when the Jewish people heard the words, I am, their minds immediately would have gone back to Exodus 3, verse 14, which is where uh, Moses asked God to reveal his name. You remember this passage? Moses asked God to reveal his name so he can uh, tell it to the Israelites, and God tells Moses, I am who I am. So Jesus is identifying himself with the God of Israel, and he reveals to this woman that he is the Messiah they've been waiting for. Verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? So they came out of the town and made their way toward him. The woman is so excited about her conversation with Jesus that she forgets her uh, water jar at the well. Like after that whole trek, right? After she, she left behind the water jar that she came for. And then she goes back to her community, to these people that she's been trying to avoid, and she tells everyone that she thinks she might have met the Messiah. And then in verse 39, we see the outcome of all of this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus knocked down all of the walls that divide us as human beings. And we see him doing that here in this passage. He crosses social boundaries and religious boundaries and political boundaries and divisions based on gender and moral status. But he goes even farther than that. Here, Jesus crosses into the parts of this woman's life that have been keeping her bound up in shame. He wanted her to know that he was there talking to her, accepting her, offering her living water, knowing full well who she was and what she'd done. Jesus entered into the parts of her life that she believed disqualified her from being loved from experiencing a sense of belonging, and certainly from being accepted by God. And he extended his love and his welcome to her exactly as she was. And both times that we hear about this woman spreading the good news that the Messiah had come, this is exactly what she points to. She doesn't say, you know, I think this guy must be the Messiah because I asked him a question about worship and he had like a really profound answer. I think he's the guy. What does she say? He told me everything I ever did. He knew everything about me. The part of her life that brought her the most shame was the exact place that Jesus met her. And through that encounter, she was transformed. 
The woman that went back to her community was not the woman that walked to the well that day. Her past didn't change. In many ways, her life was still a mess, right? Things were the same. No doubt she'd have a lot to work through, but she was free. She wasn't hiding. She'd experienced Christ's love for her and it changed her. And then through her testimony, the testimony of this woman who had been totally rejected and marginalized, the entire community comes to Jesus and receives salvation. One of the most powerful things about grace is that it extends to the messiest parts of our lives. The things we uh, try to hide, the sin we can't get under control, our failures, our weaknesses. Jesus knows about all of them. And he welcomes us exactly where we are and he offers us his living water. We don't have to fix ourselves first. We don't have to pretend like we have it all together. And when we do, we actually miss out on what this woman experienced when she encountered Jesus at the well. The healing and the freedom that come when we let him meet us in the parts of our lives where we just can't get it together on our own. Because of grace, we don't have to try to shame ourselves or punish ourselves into becoming the kinds of people that we know we should be. Because of grace, we don't need to hide or deny the things that keep tripping us up. Instead, we can ask God to help us. We can bring them before God and we can ask God to help us understand what it is that's really going on inside of us, what it is that's driving us and how to move forward. We can receive his comfort. We can sense his presence with us in the midst of our struggles. We're invited to bring our whole selves before God, trusting in his grace and to let him lead us step by step into healing and transformation. Is that good news? That's good news. We are in a season right now where most of us are carrying all kinds of feelings of shame and inadequacy. Our lives today don't look anything like what, they, uh, what we imagined they would look like back in the early days of 2020. I mean, as a uh, church community, things have changed pretty drastically over the last two years. In 2020, back in January, we were having vision meetings to decide whether we should build an expansion or plant a site because we were growing so much we couldn't squeeze everyone into this building. We were dreaming about how God might be calling us to reach our community in new ways. Things were moving forward. You know, everything was kind of growing. And then suddenly, a global pandemic hit and everything changed. And now we're in this place where our community is kind of fragmented, right? There's been division. We haven't been able to connect all together in the way that we used to. People have different perspectives on like everything. We're in a pastoral transition. It's taking time to kind of rebuild and to get our programs up and running. If you like toddlers, let me just make a little plug there. (laughs) There's opportunities available in the toddler room. It's taking us a while, right, to get things back up and running. 
And it's easy to see, it was easy for us to see how God was moving in our church back in the early months of uh, 2020. But what does it look like to be the church that God's calling us to be in this season? Still with us. On a personal level, most of us don't have the same spring in our step that we had you know, two and a half years ago. We've been navigating things like burnout and weariness and conflict and anxiety. We worry about the ways that we've been falling short as friends, as parents, as employees, as Christians. Most of us aren't functioning at the same capacity we're used to functioning at. So what does it look like to be the people God's calling us to be in this season? We live in a culture that puts a high value on productivity and on performance. And so it's easy to get stuck worrying about all of the ways that we aren't measuring up. But we aren't called to a life of striving. We're called to a life of surrender. Jesus isn't worried uh, about our performance and our productivity in the same ways that we are. He wasn't caught off guard by anything that happened over the course of the past two years. And he's not sitting back, just like waiting for us to pull ourselves together. He's right with us in the midst of it. And he has been all along. And he invites us to open up our whole lives to him. To name those areas where we're struggling. To be honest with him about where we're at. And to trust in his grace and his power as we let him lead us forward. I'm going to read Matthew 11:28 to 30 from the message. And, and as I do, I just want you to listen for the invitation that Christ is extending to you this morning. It says this, Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly.